Hello everyone, welcome to an episode of In My Opinion. My name is John. I'm Alastor. And I'm Patron. <laughs> yes, joining us today is Patron. Okay, we have someone very special today. And she is our friend, uh, actually more of Alastor's friend. Maybe you want to do a bit of introduction yourself? So, hi guys. Uh, I am Patron. I'm currently studying in Peking University in Beida. I'm a Yanjing scholar there. And I'm right now holding up in Singapore with all of you. Very good, very good, very good. Okay, so actually, uh, we found her story super interesting. Okay, and then like, because she has come from Beijing, right, which is like the epicenter of, uh, no, sorry, the country which has the epicenter of everything. And then eventually made her way to Singapore while still have, leaving part of her stuff in China, <laughs> right? Most of my stuff is all in China, actually. Yeah. Okay, so today we are having her uh, patient here today so that we can talk a little bit about all this this COVID-19 situation, especially from the perspective of somebody who has been to multiple countries and different systems within the past few months and then having made it back safely home. Yeah, I think, yeah, there are a lot of times like we as Singaporeans, especially when we discuss these topics, it's always in like just taking the Singapore context in, 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 like, in, in mind. But it's nice to like once in a while just kind of like look at other countries, see what they're doing and see where we can improve and what we have done well as well. Like. Definitely, definitely. And I think like uh, you'll be able to provide some valuable insight. Like. So maybe you want to share with us a little bit on uh, on the maybe a, a, a quick uh, recap of what has happened right, since the time you were in Peking University and then eventually make it back to Singapore. Well, I mean, thanks guys for having me uh, and for letting me share my story. So what happened was that on January 21st, which is when Wuhan went under, under lockdown, I was actually in Surabaya. I wasn't in Beijing because uh, in January, it was our winter break for uh, Chinese New Year, which in China, they call it Chuanzie. And all our stuff, um, all the international students, we were traveling around. We, some of us were in China, some of us were not. But basically, in, we were given no notice at all. We, were, we just received a message on WeChat saying that we were no longer allowed to enter our dormitories because of what happened in Wuhan. And therefore, all the universities were prohibiting international students or even any student, even a local student, from re-entering the dorms. So all of us were just caught completely off guard. Um, all my stuff is still there. I've been living out of a suitcase, like a tiny suitcase for the past four months because I haven't been able to go back and re-enter China. And I had to reschedule all my plans to figure out what I was going to do because I, I didn't know I was living with um, just in complete absence of any knowledge of what was going to happen next. I didn't know when school would start. I didn't know where to go. So because I had a bunch of friends in the States and um, they said, you know, right now, Southeast Asia and Asia in general is not the safest place because back then, you know, Singapore was the country with one of the highest rates of COVID-19. This was in January, right, you were saying? That was in January, yeah. Um, and then so I decided to go to the States because I thought everything would blow over soon and then from the States fly back to Beijing that was the plan but I ended up being stuck in the States for six weeks well, this was in February already I believe so uh, yeah I, I entered the States on February 10th and I left the States March 25th where everything was just you know going downhill for the States for New York especially because I was based in New York for six weeks, yeah. Okay, so that means you're just done with your stay-home notice lah. 
I yes, I have just completed my stay home notice. <laughs> to have to stay home for the rest of the month, so I guess yeah, uh, <laughs> I ended a stay home notice. And I entered a lockdown or a country in a circuit breaker because we're not using the word lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So very good. So like uh, having been to China and then Surabaya and then after that to the States and then now you're back in Singapore, I believe you have a little bit of a better understanding than most of us about what people are doing around the region. Lah. Okay. <laughs> so maybe you want to share with us what do you think uh, of uh, what Singapore has been doing for the COVID-19 situation as compared to all these countries that you've been to? Well, I think the Singapore government's response has been exceptional if you compare it to other countries. So we conducted aggressive testing from the very beginning. In way back in January, we before we even got our first case of COVID-19, we were already preparing for it because we have lived through SARS. And we know that we are susceptible to such a pandemic because of our proximity and relationship with China. And we have a lot of traffic from China. So we, it, was, it was inevitable that we would be hardest hit um, you know, if we didn't take any precautions. So in that sense, our aggressive testing, our you know, uh, very clear communication channels between the people and the government, ha- and as well as the uh, very meticulous contact tracing, that's something that other countries did not do in early January, I mean, late January uh, and in February until March, where other countries um, believing that, I mean, I'm thinking right now of maybe the States because I was in the States and when I entered the States, there were really no checks or balance, no checks on like who was, who had COVID-19 or not. So they only asked me at immigration if I've had, if I had been to China for the past 14 days, to which I answered truthfully, no, I haven't. And that was all. No one took my temperature, like no one scanned me for anything there was no quarantine there was no there were no measures because because i think they just thought that they were so far away from china that it wouldn't affect them right i understand so right. this is like in february yeah. la. this is what the states was doing in february when actually in singapore february was lost con orange already right yes correct it was pretty bad in february i remember but like for some i think everyone was looking at the states as well because like like the states was seemingly doing nothing like i i always stay i always tell my friends this like the Western, I consume a lot of Western media and I think a lot of people do. But it seems like the Western media were not caring about the coronavirus at all or COVID-19 at all at that time. And then suddenly when the states, when like New York became like a new like epicenter or like when it started becoming a more rampant problem in the states, suddenly now all I can see on my Facebook and everything are COVID-related news. And I think they're like... Uh, a bit late lah, that's the thing. Yeah, it's quite interesting that like like, even when, like, everyone else was panicking, they were just, like, chill. Mm. In fact, I, I remember that was the period whereby their politicians were saying, like, like oh, you know, it's going to be all right. We are, like, super ready. You know, there's nothing to worry about. Please go out and continue party. Yeah, so when I was in the States, um, and life was just going on as per usual, people were treating COVID-19 like a, like a meme that was a very China-specific meme. And uh, they were just basically very lackadaisical about it. And um, uh, because I was living with friends who are American citizens, you know, um, Trump, I was watching Trump briefings and he's just like, he was denying that the virus was the problem in February. He said that it's as serious as the flu and more people die from the flu every year than, you know, at that point in time than COVID-19. So there's nothing to worry about. He's also very concerned for re-election because right now, I mean, um, 
if you were, um, it's sort of the election period for um, the president in the state. It's coming up soon. So he was, uh, he was really like sort of preoccupied with things like with domestic politics. And this, this was kind of on the back burner. You know, he, he was also dealing with the Senate who, you know, they were trying to impeach him. And then um, there was just a whole lot of other things that were going on. I think there was just not a priority for the states in February at all. I'm guessing the citizens are paying for it now. Lah. Yeah, it seems like it because today, um, you know, we've just seen, I think the, Amer- I mean, the USA has broken a number of records. Today we saw 2,000 deaths happen in a single day. Um, the U.S. has the highest cases uh, of COVID-19 more than any other country in the world. I mean, you can say that China hasn't been, uh, China's statistics are inaccurate because maybe China has been misreporting or China has been like not testing. You know, there's all these conspiracy theories floating around. But like, it's not really our position to look at that right now. You know, we look at what is in front of us and it does seem like obviously the state has the highest caseload so far. And it even surpassing Italy, which was kind of the epicenter of the crisis in Europe and caused this like you no know, entire meltdown across the Europe region, which then spread to America. Yep, yep. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to the point about like the re-election thing, because in Singapore we are also kind of having a general elections supposedly this year. So a lot of people, I mean, there's been like a lot of discussion about whether general elections should should be held this year given the whole COVID problem. So how do you think that like like um, do you guys think that like it should be should still be held? And secondly, like compared to the states and how uh, Donald Trump seems to be handling the whole re-election thing co- with COVID, do you think Singapore has been okay and got these priorities right? Well, I had I just had this conversation with like a friend in from New York yesterday. So we were debating about whether it's ethical to to host an election during a crisis or after a crisis. For instance, Wisconsin. They, the, so the, the uh, governor of Wisconsin is, I mean, is Democrat, but that's irrelevant for now because he tried to block the election um, that was being held in Wisconsin, but the Republicans wanted to push it through because and right in this period where people are not supposed to be going out because it's unsafe, but because they still do like, you know, traditional like letterbox voting, like the Republicans were essentially trying to force a very unsafe election where if it's either you vote because you know voting is not compulsory in the states so either you put your line your, your life in the line to vote or you don't vote at all so you're forcing voters into this dichotomy and then so even though the wisconsin governor tried to block this election the supreme court court ruled that this election was legal and allowed the election to take place so you saw you know, um, videos of people just queuing up not observing safety distances or people who just don't maybe just don't have masks um but then you know it's either you vote and have your voice heard or not at all so in that sense it's it's definitely gerrymandering and i i believe it was quite an unethical move to make yeah yeah but then um and then maybe you could draw a parallel in this case to singapore i don't think the singapore government will host or will run an election during the pandemic period what i think is that election an election might happen immediately after uh, we have been through the worst because crises tend to privilege the incumbent governments. In for in in the U.S., like wartime presidents have always been re-elected. It's the same thing in the U.K. as well. Winston Churchill was re-elected after World War II because people want stability in times of crisis. 
And if a president, if a leader has proven themselves capable of taking the country through a crisis, people tend to want to keep and want to preserve these. I mean, I mean, it makes sense, lah. This would be a yeah. typical human reaction. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, as I think, I would see why the Singapore government would want to run uh, an election after the pri- after the crisis because this would definitely privilege their position and it would strengthen the their sort of the voter base uh, as compared to the opposition. I think right now, based on what you're saying, I mean, politics wise, right? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I feel that a lot of citizens are 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 very heartened by the effect by by the by the actions of our governments, lah. Because definitely there are a lot of positive effects on the general population. But mm-hmm. on the matter of ethics, like you mentioned, I think I agree with you that like holding it right now, especially during this very critical period, right, it's not something that should be the priority of the government. If mm-hmm. truly the citizens are are what you care for. Actually, I'm very curious because the government has been trying to push us like Singapore like, I'm not talking about the US but in Singapore the government has been trying to push us to like go forward go ahead with the elections especially if the things die down a little bit so I'm just very curious as to why the government wants to push this forward so quickly instead of waiting it out I think, be, I think it's very important to understand <laughs> that for in order for a democratic government to work right systems, systems and rules must be followed you, okay. it cannot just be stopped because of uh, of Something it just so happened that like this is ex- this is an extreme situation whereby uh if you go and think about it, acting either way does not really give you the most desirable outcome mm-hmm. one word yeah. one word one word pro- one would be problematic for the institution the other would be problematic mm-hmm. in terms of the disease, so which is the you know the way to act either way to act you will you will draw criticism right so I think it's not the not the right thing for a citizen right now to question their government on election decisions during this COVID-19 period because the priority, I mean, the trust is, the trust in the government is what's important right now in order to, in order to survive this situation then, tell, when, then thinking whether the decision is correct or not. You know mm. what I'm talking about, right? Because the, yeah. whole, the whole scenario is, is a lot bigger than, than like, oh, you know, they decided to choose A is B when actually B is what I wanted or they decided to choose B because A is what I wanted. That, that, that I feel is a little bit petty compared to the emergency situation we're currently in. Yeah. I think it's two things. Like, firstly, because uh, according to the constitution, we have to have an election by next June. So it's, we can't, like, any government shouldn't violate the constitution because the constitution is what runs the country so that's point one but the second point is that i think having an election is not necessarily a bad thing because it gives the population a chance to evaluate how the government has performed because when it doesn't necessarily always privilege the incumbent because what if the incumbent does a bad job so then they would have to suffer for it at the ballot box but if they do a good job they will be maybe disproportionately rewarded for it. Who knows? But then, so that's why in that sense, it does give the population a chance to reevaluate how the government has performed. And then with the examples that I previously raised about wartime presidents, you know, that tends to be the case that wartime presidents are usually re-elected because the populations usually think they've done a good job, but that doesn't necessarily mean they didn't actually do a good job. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think this one we are talking, we are poking a little bit too much into politics already. Maybe we we'll just <laughs> come back a little bit to to how Singapore is uh, uh, working on this current COVID nineteen problem, right? So 
Have, patient, having, having, having been to these multiple countries, right? maybe you can give us a short list on what you think Singapore can do better as compared to what you've seen, you know? Right. Yeah. So I think that um, what Singapore has room to improve in would be how we have handled the migrant workers in our community. Because um, right now we are experiencing a third wave of infections. And the first wave was back in January, where we had, uh, you know, Chinese nationals entering China, uh, entering Singapore, uh, etc. And then the second wave, we've curbed that. But then the second wave was when uh, all our, like, a lot of Singaporeans were returning from US and UK in March, including myself, that might have put the population at risk again because of the imported uh, cases. And then the third wave that we're experiencing now is the wave coming from the migrant workers, which I felt was a ticking time bomb. I think the government did really well in sort of taking care of its citizens and then, you know, planning out these like amazing resilience, unity, solidarity, these budgets to tide us through the economic recession that we are about to face. The problem is these things don't cater or don't for migrant workers. I think we've sort of neglected the migrant workers in our midst. Because what the government did in February and March was that they gave guidelines to dormitory operators. But the fundamental problem is that these dormitory operators were unable to abide by these guidelines, such as uh, social dis- distancing and uh, you know um, clean, good hygiene, uh, the fewer, less usage of communal areas. Because by the design of the dorms itself, it's impossible for migrant workers to socially distance themselves from each other. We have 15 men in one dorm room, in one bunk, and then each of them have 4.5 meters of square space each. And then imagine that, you know, everyone's trying to do laundry, everyone has all their own personal belongings. It's basically worse than BMT. Like the rooms are smaller than BMT rooms. Then you have the communal areas, which are filthy. You know, we see reports of like cockroaches, of lizards, of pests. You know, trash not being cleared, um, just very poor hygiene in general in these communal areas because of the very nature of the space. And then that, that's, that makes it impossible for dormitory operators to actually comply with the Ministry of Manpower's guidelines back in February and March. So even without COVID-19, these dorms were already a big problem for the living standards of migrant workers. Like we aren't taking care of them enough. And then COVID-19 has just exposed the reality to us that it's becoming a real problem because because once one, once one worker gets it, you, you can almost guarantee that like two, 20,000 people, men in the same dormitory will definitely get it because they aren't allowed to leave. Like what the government is doing right now is that they're isolating each or sort of like each dormitory with a case. So five dormitories so far have been isolated. That means nearly 45,000 migrant workers are in isolation. What does isolation mean? They can't, even, they, they, they can't even leave their rooms. The guidelines is that they stay in their rooms and then food will be delivered to them. And unlike us, you know, we can go out for runs. We can go out to buy food if we wear a mask. We can still live as normally as possible. But for the migrant workers, it's essentially, you know, their dormitories are being turned into jails. So it's a very different situation for them and for us right now. Yeah. I think there's a 
very big like um like criticism of the government so far like when it comes to the whole like how they have been handling COVID is that a lot of people have been throwing on the word like reactionary like the government has been being re- reactionary to like what's happening so uh, when back in like January or February a lot of people were criticizing the government for not closing like for not even uh, implementing like travel restrictions fast enough especially with China like the people from China and even now with the whole migrant worker situation uh, like I think a lot of criticism work is coming towards the government for like not having enough foresight to see that this was going to be a problem and just reacting based on like oh now there's a huge ca- a spike in dorm cases let's do something about it so like what what do you guys think about do you think the government is indeed being reactionary or is it just the product of these weird circumstances that like you can't really blame anyone for not being able to see like the future when it comes to these sort of things um i think our government has uh been i i would i wouldn't say that they're not reactionary but at the same time, I would say like if there's a spectrum of reactionability, they are on the lower spec. They are on the lower end of the spectrum now because I feel that um, despite what people may criticize about the government, right, this is a situation that is so new that no one in the world or no no institute in the world is able to proper properly like like um wrap their wrap their heads around it. So as a government, there are many things you have to consider when the threat is is like I mean you can compare this to like wartime, you know. So wartime, right, um, war doesn't come at one go. You know, it escalates for a country. So when a country faces a crisis like war, right, you will always start from a very low threat level eventually to a very high threat level. And the difference between wartime and this is that war is very much more predictable. I mean, it's very funny to say, but war is very much more predictable than this current new novel coronavirus. So what happens is that our government has all these guidelines, I believe, since SARS and, and from all the other operations that they may have to move forward. But it's just that this situation changed so quickly that they have no choice but to work react in, a, in a more reactionary manner than just like being able to um, act the policies and things are done. It's not that simple. And I feel that like faulting the government on being reactionary is not the right way to... to um, to approach this, I think it could be if they if there's if there are critics to our government or the systems, I feel that the critics should be the fact that like um during peacetime, during non-emergency times, these were not things that were put at the top priority. And that has nothing to do with reaction. It's just purely wow. no emphasis on on pandemic research and stuff like that. And I think if you want to talk about that aspect of governance, then every country in the world has been neglecting the aspect. And that's why we're in this situation right now. Yeah, to be very fair to the Singaporean government, back in January, we were one of the first countries to implement a ban on travel to and fro China. So despite, because I haven't really been updated with what Singaporeans on the ground have been saying, I've just been looking at it from a distance. Comparatively, the Singapore government has done a very good job uh, if you want to look at Italy, if you want to look at the UK and the USA. However, in this, in the, on, for the case of migrant workers, I think there was a problem that was just waiting to explode because in February, um, you know, a lot of NGOs such as Transient Workers Count You have already flagged out that dormitories will be a problem. No matter how much we try to contain the situation outside, you know, the dormitories are still, you know, physically, they are in Singapore. They are, you know, part and parcel of our social fabric even though they're not citizens. 
So if they get it, it's it's bound to spread to the community in Singapore who are not people who are not migrant workers because the pandemic does not discriminate. Because, yeah, we are fighting a war right now, and then and the war is um you know against COVID nineteen, so it's definitely not a conventional war. But in a sense, I think this was one of the lacunas that we that um the government might have overlooked a little bit because because the, yeah because they were really robust in all other areas. Yes. I think I think what you mentioned yeah. is is very important and uh, mm-hmm. very accurate to this particular situation. I feel that in terms of preparedness for Singapore, in terms of uh, for our for our government, for our citizens, right? I feel that that uh, the level of preparedness is extremely high, and for most countries, I would say we are already one of the top few in terms of protecting our own citizens' interests. But we forget that there are other people, you know, that are also part of our society which are the people who are not necessarily citizens, you know, different, different tiers of it. It could be purely migrant workers who are on a work pass or it could be just long-term pass people. And that is where uh, it becomes problematic, especially for the lower tier workers who, who are housed in dormitories, you know, which is like what you mentioned, a disaster waiting to happen. And mm-hmm. I think I, I have this theory that like the reason why we're in circuit breaker now is because when the first migrant worker infection was confirmed, uh, Singapore already uh, the government already started to plan for this because um, the thing about COVID nineteen is that it will expose all the cracks in your system, you mm. know. And and the mo- and the good thing about our government being reactionary, Alistair, is that the sure. moment this has happened, right, based on what they understand, they immediately plan for. I believe they immediately plan for this. Mm. Yeah, I don't think. Okay, I think that the while in okay while I think the government's actions seem to be reactionary. I don't think it's fair to expect them to be not to be any, to do anything else other than reactionary, especially when it comes to a brand new virus that no one really knows about. And sure, there are some things that you can see coming, and like maybe like the whole dom the migrant worker thing was a big problem that should have been solved. But then, given how much strain the government has been on, especially with like dealing with a lot of other problems like the whole economic problems, trying to like even like getting our Singaporeans in line to not hot and not do stupid things, right? It's, it was already quite a problem already, much less like trying to solve any other problems. Correct, so, correct. So, so this was like what I, what I was saying, you know, the government has meant, all governments have many, many things to focus on. And it just yeah. so happened that this wave of COVID-19, this pandemic just came real quick and real fast and real surgical and all countries are paying for it right now. Yeah, I think... Um, another interesting thing, like maybe patient can like uh shed some light on this, like, like the she also said that in China they basically just receive a what a WeChat message, and that that's it. The dorms were closed, and then uh they basically locked down Wuhan overnight, and then Singapore went into a circuit breaker measure, like maybe it gave us like five days, and then the US right now comparably seems to be doing a lot less compared to other countries, so like, uh. Is this uh, what you see as like a difference in the system or is it just a difference in ideology or what do you, why do you think I it's the case? I think it's a, a difference in terms of um, govern, government structure and uh, maybe also politics. So what happened in China, because it's a one-party state, it has the ability to shut an entire city off in the event of a crisis. So when in, in I we're international students, we're not Chinese citizens. So you know they just gave us a WeChat message telling us like we can't enter. 
and my flatmate had to fight her way back into the dorm to get like her stuff. My my friends who were locked out of the dorms, they were in Beijing, but they weren't in the dorms at the time of the lockdown. Or they they tried to leave the country, but all their passports, their clothing, everything essential was back in the dorm. So that was a huge issue there. But then the Chinese government and the Chinese administration had no qualms about doing so. So a lot of the headlines that we saw in the wake of the Wuhan lockdown were headlines saying things like, you know, uh, China locks down an entire city at the expense of human rights and human liberties. Then you contrast it with like one month, fast forward one month later, and then Italy does the same thing where Italy starts to lock down Lombardy because there has been an explosion of COVID-19 there. Well, what the headlines were saying, the same newspapers were saying things like, you know, Italy locks down an entire region in order to save their citizens at the expense of their economy. So, you know, it was the same action, but they, the, the, the perspectives or, uh, that, or the way that it, each action was portrayed was very different depending on which government it originated from. And I think that's definitely a maybe a uh, little bit of sinophobia at work in Western media. But at the same time, if you want to evaluate what they did, so China, they sacrificed a great deal um, in order to, to, to contain a virus, and they took two months to contain it. Then you look at Singapore, where we prepared for it, but the thing is, we eased into a near-lockdown situation. And even at this point in time, we're not calling it a lockdown. You know, we, so, so it was gradual, and so that ensured that, you know, our citizens were not shocked by it. It also ensured that our economy was, you know, as least impacted as possible. Yes, as cushioned uh, but, as possible. Yeah, correct. As, as cushioned as possible. So, um, and then with like active communication between our prime minister and the people, that was something that was very much lacking in a lot of other uh, countries and cities. So in Italy, at the beginning of February, they were telling everyone that COVID-19 is as serious as the flu. It's basically no big deal. It only affects you if you're old. And if you're young, please continue to go out and party. If not, our economy will collapse. That was what the Italian government was telling its people. So when it backtracked at end, in end February and set it to lock down entire regions, people were just confused because people were like, but you told us it was it's just the flu. You know, why are we suddenly going under lockdown? Because the Italian government realized that, you know, their healthcare system was under siege. It just couldn't take the influx of COVID-19 cases. Um, and they realized they got a real problem on their hands. So it's, um, it, it just boils down to good communication between the government and the people. Be honest and be upfront about what we're dealing with. And that was what Singapore succeeded in doing. The, the government was honest with us, telling its people about the severity of the, of the virus. And that's why people started hoarding, you know, way back in January. People were hoarding toilet paper, were queuing up at like NTUC. And now, now we're seeing that replay across the globe because that's how people act in times of panic and crisis. Yeah, and in the States as well, like, um, so what happened was that I was stuck in New York for a longer time than I expected to because I didn't know that things would escalate so badly. I, I knew it would get bad, but not that bad. And what happened was that overnight, New York and New York City, like restaurants were suddenly prohibited from opening. Like all restaurants were ordered to close. Um, and the thing is, uh, that's way more serious. You know, the, the escalation of measures were ramped up 
faster in New York because cases were also increasing at a higher rate in New York than Singapore. But that's because in February, there wasn't much being done about it at a federal level. Yes. I think I think for Singapore, we are quite a lucky country because we are... Um, I would say our government is not as authoritarian as the one that is in China, even though it is a lot more authoritarian than the one in, I would say, maybe the United States. So as a result of that, right, um, enforcing some of the stricter and more harsh uh, control measures in order to stop the pandemic that the citizens might not agree with, right, was something that Singapore could quickly activate. You know? And uh, as a result of that, I would say that we are currently... And we were originally improving along for, for, for that like, uh, in terms of the situation. But right now, there's another exposed uh, crack in our system, which I believe the government has very, very quickly in a semi-authoritarian fashion, right, put in all the correct blocks to try to solve that. And I think that's what, one of the things that we can be grateful for in our country because we're able to act on that without restricting too many of our civil liberties and personal freedom. Yeah, I think uh, it's very easy to like, uh, as I say in the start of the episode, very easy to like just see everything that Singapore has been doing in like a very tunnel vision way. But I think it's nice to kind of like take a step back sometimes to look at like the rest of the world and seeing like how the rest of the world has been comparing versus us. Because I remember there's a period of time where we were saying that hoarding was like a third world behavior. And like, man, Singapore Singaporeans suck because we hoard toilet paper and we are damn stupid. Yeah. And then, and like, then suddenly the whole world does it. And then now it's yeah, and, then, and then now <laughs> yeah, and then now like suddenly the entire world is a third world country. So like, like it's so nice to like once in a while just like take a step back and like, okay, do you know what? Here's where we are compared to everyone else. Here's what we need to do better. Yeah, be grateful for what we have as well. Correct. And I think this perspective is important, especially if you want to be appreciative about what you have. Because when you have perspective, you don't you start to focus on not the things that you don't have. Oh, and then it's easier to be grateful when you see the things that you actually have yeah alright so is this a nice way to end it I guess okay. patient do you have any final words you want to share with our audience about this current situation um, I mean right now I think if you're listening to this from like your house I think you're one of the lucky ones because we got to think about the people outside who are working you know our essential workers who can't afford to stay at home so stay at home, being able to stay at home is something for middle class people, like upper middle class people. It's for someone who has a job who can do that. It's for someone who is a citizen. I mean, if you're right, right now, like if, if you're stuck in the migrant worker dormitory, you, your freedom of movement is restricted. You know, you can't go out and run. Um, there's just no space for you to be safe to away from someone who might be infected, who might be sleeping right next to you. So we're lucky that we don't ha- that, you know, some of us don't have to go through that. But I think that that's when we need to step in and support those people who have to. So, you know, we're going to get a $600 handout from the government, like the, the one-off payout. I, I mean, I'm looking to donate that and I'm looking to donate to like tra- uh, migrant workers groups. So maybe you can consider don- like donating that to someone that you think needs it. You know, it might be a friend who's struggling financially or a family member or it could be like an NGO, you know. I'll be putting some, I'll be putting a link in the description um, with like, a bunch of like organizations that you can donate to. I actually linked it in the previous video, but I'll put it down again just 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 for you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very, very nice way to end this episode because uh 
definitely we are I feel that we are a very privileged bunch, especially the citizens who are getting a handout from the government. Firstly, we have a strong government that is even able to give us a handout and try to support us during this time of crisis. And being people who who are not in extreme need, right? I feel that if we have the ability to, we should definitely reach out to help out the people who are around us in our in our country. We're all in this together. Everyone is suffering. Everyone is equally susceptible to the disease. So uh, if you have the ability to help out, I feel that we should all try to chip in a little bit to ease the suffering of, the, of our fellow men, especially during this time of crisis. That's yeah. Right. And yes, we have come to the end of our episode. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. You will... Uh, uh, see more of episodes like this, especially during this circuit breaker period. Lah, huh? So we'll try to get more guests around and then, uh, yep, you'll see more recordings like this. So thank you so much for joining us today, Patient. Thank you for having me. Yes, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, guys. Bye.